Hi everybody, Liam here. Just a little content warning. This episode contains adult language and adult themes related to sex work and drug use. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Okay, on with the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Now remember, a pimp is only as good as his product. See? And his product is women. Now you got to go out there and you got to get the best ones you can find. You gotta work them broads like nobody's ever worked them before. And never forget, anybody can control a woman's body. See? But the key is to control a mind. You see, Pippin's big business. And it's been going on since the beginning of time. And it's gonna continue straight ahead. Somebody up there turns out the lights on this small planet. Can you dig it? Yeah, yeah, I can dig it, yeah. That clip is from the 1972 cult classic, The Mac. Even though The Mac gets lumped in with a lot of the so-called exploitation films of that era, I don't think that's quite fair. Movies like Shaft and Dolomite were action thrillers, sometimes bordering on cartoonish. The Mac feels more like a documentary. And that was intentional. The director came from a documentary background, and he wanted the Mac to be as realistic as possible. So they shot on location in real barbershops and pool halls and speakeasies in Oakland. The extras weren't professionals. They were real people. Richard Pryor, who helped write the script, he grew up in a brothel, and he brought that experience into the dialogue. Several of the most infamous scenes, like the part where a thief is locked in a trunk full of rats, or the part where a pimp is forced to stab himself, those were based on real incidents. But more than anything else, the main reason why the Mac feels so authentic is because of the Ward brothers. They were a family who dominated Oakland's underground sex economy from the mid-1960s until the early 70s. In other words, they were the biggest pimps in the game. Their clothes and cars were in the film. They were in the film. But most important of all, the main character in the Mac, a pimp named Goldie, was based on the leader of the Ward brothers, Frank. Everything began and ended with Frank. Frank was Goldie. Frank was the picture. I mean, he was, in my mind, the heart and soul of what we were doing. That clip was from an interview with the film's director, Michael Campus, from a 2003 documentary called Mackin' Ain't Easy. The Mac was an indie flick with a shoestring budget, but it gained a huge following right off the bat. It even made more money than The Godfather in some cities during its initial run in theaters. But I think the main reason why it's still so famous 
is because it's been sampled and referenced in dozens and dozens of rap hits. Too Short, Snoop Dogg, and Outkast are just a few of the artists who've incorporated language and themes from the film into songs. If you only knew the Mac through these samples and shoutouts, you might think that the film is an unabashed celebration of the pimp game. It's not. Behind all the flamboyant clothes and customized cars, it's a cautionary tale. But it's not a simple fable about right and wrong, good versus evil. One of the conflicts at the heart of the story is between Goldie and his brother, a black activist character modeled after Huey Newton. Here's what happens when his brother, the activist, tries to get Goldie to quit pimping. I mean, I got a right to live my life the way I want to live it. I mean, being rich and black means something, man. Don't you know that? Being poor and black don't mean shit. We're living in different times. When you and I were young kids, I mean, there were no heroes. We got all sorts of heroes now. I mean, there, there are kids out there who look up to me, man. Man, can't you see you? That's just teaching black kids to exploit their own kind, and that's sick. Well, it's not sick, man. It's sick when you got a chance to get out of a rat-infested ghetto and you don't. Oh, wow, then you really lost your love for the brothers altogether then, haven't you? I mean, don't be dropping that brotherly love shit on me, man. There's been a lot written about the Mac. Books, articles, even academic papers. But not very much has been written about the men who inspired the film, the Ward brothers. It was mostly just rumors and hearsay out there, until recently. A few months ago, Chloe Silvers, an Oakland native, published the first book to dig into the real story of the Ward brothers, to separate facts from myths. Chloe interviewed Willie, the last surviving brother, shortly before he passed away in 2019. She interviewed the Ward's closest associates, men like Governor and Boss. She talked to the Ward's kids. Uh, she talked to the stars of the Mac, Max Julian and Carol Speed, who also both just passed away recently. And most importantly, she talked to the women, the wives and girlfriends, and yes, the sex workers. Some of the women played all three roles, and they weren't shy about sharing their happy memories and their bitter sorrows. Even though the book is called The Fabulous Ward Brothers, it doesn't ignore the brutal realities and the tragic side of the so-called game. Here's Chloe Silvers. Before this book was written, it was all about the War Brothers. The War Brothers, they were Max, they were pimps, they had all these fabulous cars. You know, it was glamorized. You know, Frank had the elephant skin. I mean, who has elephant skin on their car? <laughs> I mean, think about it, you know. But he had that, he had like the baddest car ever. And custom-made clothes, the Players Convention. I think they were known for all of that and of course the mac the movie the mac and and all this stuff and mink suits and they were like idolized and i think after i think now hopefully this book will see him as not idolized for pimping and glorification but see him as human beings and Yes, they did do all these things, but there was a price to pay. Mm -hmm. They weren't just pimps. They, were, they had families and, you know, the murders and not just Frank. Blanche was murdered. 
and Leon Wagner was beat up, pistol whipped, his wife was shot. Um, this book is more than just pimping, it's about closure and redemption. This year, 2022, is the 50th anniversary of Frank Ward's death. If you poke around on the internet, the most common theory you'll find is that Frank and his quote-unquote bottom woman, Blanche Bernard, were assassinated by the Black Panthers over a dispute involving the production of the Mac. According to Chloe Silvers, nothing about that theory is accurate, and she'll explain why in this episode. Today, on East Bay Yesterday, you'll be hearing about the real story of the Ward brothers. And just a quick note that you'll also be hearing a few more clips from the Mac and the Mac and Ain't Easy documentary sprinkled throughout our q and I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. So let's get into the story of the War Brothers. And let's start from the beginning, where you start the book, because they weren't originally from Oakland. Can you tell me a little bit about like where they grew up and their family history? The War Brothers were from Alabama. Their parents were sharecroppers. They grew up like most black Americans in the South, farming and the boys having to quit school early to help with the sharecropping. You know, they grew up poor, but not poor in spirit poor money-wise. Right, like they literally didn't have shoes until like, I think you said they were in sixth grade or something like that, some of them. Right. They just grew up using what was available to them. Mm -hmm. But they attended church every Sunday with their mother. They were a normal, happy family. I think all of them went to school up probably till elementary, and Ted Ward may have done middle school, maybe seventh grade. But I know Frank, he went to Fowler High in California. He came out to California actually to live with his aunt. And he, um think, went up to the 11th grade. But they were, you know, good, honest, decent people from Alabama. Yeah. And the first brother to leave Alabama um, was the oldest brother, Drew. Can you tell me about his trajectory a little bit after leaving Alabama? Because he was also the first brother to get into pimping. And he, he kind of learned that in Detroit, right? From some of the famous pimps of that era, people like Iceberg Slim. Right. Um, Andrew, better known as Drew, he was born in 1921. And then you have the other brothers. Charles was born, I believe, in 31. Then you have... Wooly and 38, Frank in 40, and Ted in 42. So he was literally old enough to be Wooly, Ted, and Frank's father because he has children. He mm. had children their age and still have children their age. And he married and had children, and him and his wife, they moved to Michigan, and they started a, a life there. And somewhere along the line, he no longer was Andrew. He became Drew. And he lived the life where um, he was hanging out and he learned he was a pool shark. He learned the streets. And and so when him and his wife separated, she went back to Alabama and he continued on. Now, there was a 
time frame where no one knew where he was, he could have been in jail or he could have been um, anywhere. No one knew where he was. But then years later, he went to New York and he, he had a brother, Phil. Phil. And so he went to New York and him and, and got Phil and they ended up in Los Angeles. That's where Drew Mackin truly began. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, within a few years of moving to Los Angeles, they left, though, and they came up here to Northern California, specifically Oakland and, and the East Bay. What do, do you know what drew them up here? What attracted them to Oakland? Well, before Oakland, they ended up in L.A., you know, because Andrew was out there, and he was the leader, and they trusted him, especially since, you know, Andrew literally went from the cotton fields to owning property, driving mm-hmm. Cadillacs, and not just pimping, because before Andrew, he, he traveled and he saw that people were out there selling things on the streets and making money. So he took that and, you know, hey, I could be a salesman. So he went and he bought items and he couldn't sell it on the streets. So he put it in his car and he traveled around to see it. It was and mostly jewelry, right? It was jewelry and, from my understanding, clothes at that time, too. Mm-hmm. Phil was, was there with him. So Phil and Andrew, they traveled, and then they met um, Nora or Judy, because a lot of the women had two different, mm-hmm. they used two different alias. And Andrew, Phil, and Nora, they, they traveled around, and Nora was really highly intelligent. And Andrew sent her to real estate school, and they um, actually had a vast holding of real estate property, where they owned a pool hall, restaurant, uh, from understanding, a, a motel. They owned a couple of homes. So Andrew really established himself as a businessman. Mm-hmm. And this is before he really started pimping hard. So when they, the War Brothers and their family came to visit L.A., they saw all that Andrew had acquired. And it wasn't by selling drugs or being a gangster with a gun in his hand. It was all in his mind. And you have to remember, Andrew had, I believe, a third grade education, maybe. And so when his brothers came up, they worked. They worked at furniture companies. They worked. But then they saw the money Andrew was making. So Andrew um, hipped them onto the game and they would buy the jury, right? The slum jury. Or Andrew showed them how to sell it, how to package, well, it came packaged up from my understanding, but, you know, how to present it, how to sell it. And that's where the War Brothers began, as far as the brothers, not Andrew, but as far as the brothers. That's kind of how they started building their empire. Exactly. Selling slum jury. It's unclear exactly how much illegal activity was mixed in with Drew Ward's growing business portfolio. But according to Chloe Silvers, the Wards decided to leave Los Angeles in 1964 because things were getting too hot. The law was on their backs. Time to skip town and switch up the hustle. Instead of selling cheap jewelry, the new business strategy would be built around selling sex. And the streets of Oakland would be their base of operations, specifically 7th Street. Here's how Chloe describes the 7th Street track. In her book. 
The main hostro was in West Oakland on 7th Street. If a person was looking for action, they would go there because that was the hostro before the California Hotel and West MacArthur Boulevard. 7th Street was the place to be because it was happening like a downtown with all types of people walking around. It was wide open like the Las Vegas Strip. There were so many people walking around at night that the sidewalks were full. Any and everything that a person wanted was there. They had the drugs, hot clothes, hot pussy, and hot ass for sale. All kinds of men would come on 7th Street looking for dates. There were doctors, lawyers, teachers, construction workers, military men, and regular tricks. The tenants of the Victorian homes would rent out rooms as trick pads at $2 per shot. Perry's Shoe Shine store had a back room that was rented out to turn tricks in. There were fish fries, hotel rooms, and gambling joints. Jenkins Barbecue, Esther Orbit Room, Life Pool Hall, Wolf Records, and the 49ers Liquor Store. Across the street at the 76 gas station was where the pimps often gathered while keeping an eye out on their hoes. There was a food joint owned by Johnny Singer, and every weekend somebody would get shot in there. There was Robert Dixon Speakeasy, Gentlemen's Quarters. 7th Street was live and jumping because that's where the action was. Always fast, faster, and fastest. Boss said, I was 16 years old and was hustling a mink coat on 7th Street when I saw a pimp named Buddy Brazil. I showed him the coat. He held the coat up, then looked across the street at his hoe. He yelled out to her, hey baby, is this sweet? She nodded her head yes, and then he bought the coat. That was 7th Street. Let's talk a little bit about the brothers sort of getting into the game. They started by turning out their some of their girlfriends, right? Or wives even? Well, and, girlfriend. Yeah, girlfriend. So can you tell me about that process of, you describe, you know, the brothers would have different size stables of women that they were pimping. How do you go about building a stable? Or how did they go about it? Okay. Women came to them. And from all the interviews that I have done with people, they, they all said it was just something special about the War Brothers. They came in on 7th Street with their women. They came in with a different style of dressing. They all had Cadillacs. Cadillac, that was the thing back then. And it was five brothers, not friends, not cousins, but they were actually blood brothers. And the women came to them, their, you know, their charm and swag. One lady I interviewed, she said, being with them was like being in a movie. It was just glamorous, and I'm not glamorizing pimping, but it was just something about the War Brothers. They mm -hmm. had an aura that attracted men and women to them. In the book, you describe a lot of different rules of the game, and one of the rules, one of the codes, is this concept of choosing. And so that is kind of what you're referring to about the women coming to the brothers. Can you explain that process? What does choosing mean in the pimp game? When a woman leaves her, her pimp and chooses to be with another, another pimp. Mm -hmm. So basically it's a gentleman's agreement. I think the way I laid out in the book, Yoho came and she chose me. So therefore there's no need to argue a fight you know, shake hands and move on. Like, that's what's missing today, from my understanding, in the pimping game, or just in life period. You know, you, you win some, you lose some. Shake hands and you move on. 
Does everyone need an audition to get with you? You ain't got to go through all that shit. Well, then I choose you. Be cool, baby, okay? Hey, bitch, come here. Got your motherfucking man, come here. Mr. Pretty Tony, I mean, you know the rules of the game. I mean, your bitch just chose me. Now, we can settle this like you got some class, so we can get into some gangster shit. This is your first book, and you ended up tracking down so many people who were there, who knew these stories firsthand. How did you go about finding people, and was it difficult to get people to share these very personal stories with you? Well, I did come in contact with Willie Ward. He was the last living Ward brothers, you know, in this five brothers mm -hmm. that I wrote about. And he did give me permission to write the book. And we were talking about Frank's murder. And he mentioned to me, uh, Ronnie Armstrong. He kept saying, well, he was, you know, told me the story. And he was the last person to see Frank besides Blanche, who obviously was murdered with him. And I kept saying, well, who is he? Who is he? And so he just told me where he worked at. And I actually tracked down, I went to boss, Ronnie Armstrong, his, well, boss. I went to his job because well, first I wrote the job and was letting him know who I was. I didn't get a response, but I knew I was going to Disneyland. So I actually drove out to his job, Avis, rent a car. He wasn't there, but I went to the counter. I went, ex-bus drivers, you know this guy, you know this guy, and... One person said, yeah, I know him, I know him. And I got a couple of that. I left my number with a couple of people. And within a week, he called me back. Mm -hmm. So once I got in contact with Boss, he was the one who opened the doors to all the other guys. Right, because he wasn't one of the brothers, but he was tight with them. He was part of their crew. Well, yes, he was Frank War's protege. He uh -huh. was young. When mm -hmm. Frank died, I believe Boss was 20, maybe 21. Mm -hmm. And Gene, I knew from research that she was Ted's wife and she didn't want to do it at first so I was like okay I'll get the story going and I'm gonna pray and I might have to go knocking on her door she might not answer the door but I'm gonna mm -hmm. knock on her door and her grandson actually I wrote her a letter and so her grandson encouraged Maurice he encouraged me to encourage her to contact me and she reached out to me so once I got Jean and boss and Everyone else who they pulled in, they did help a lot. But I do believe Gene, Governor, and Boss, they believed in this story being told. And I think it brought closure to them as well. Especially, you know, because Boss was there when Frank was murdered. He was, you know, Frank told him, go in, I'll be back. I'll be in in a few minutes. And Frank never came back. And, you know, Gene was with them from the beginning to the end, and she she just died last September. May she rest in peace. And so she just broke everything down to me. Mm -hmm. And not just from, because, you know, she worked the streets. She was Ted's woman, first woman in Oakland on the streets. So she just broke it down to me. She had no shame in her game. I'm also wondering about the challenges that you face dealing with controversial subject matter. Um, of course, things like the flashy cars and the clothes and the money, that's all fun. But then there's also these issues of violence against women, for example, or exploitation. So as a, as a writer, how do you approach those topics? Are you worried about injecting your own morality or ethics onto someone else's story? How do you balance out 
the fact that these people are trusting you, but they're also saying things that might be offensive to a lot of people? Well, as a writer, it was very important for me to be objective. And the women, whatever they share with me, that's their truth. So my job was to report their truth, not how I felt about it. It's a story in Oakland, as you know, mm-hmm. it's full of stories. And we might write the good side of someone and we may never hear the backside, the backstory. And trust me, people backstory, some of them are just as gritty as this one, mm-hmm. but they hide it. But these people, this group of fine people who I interviewed, they, you know, they opened up and they were honest and I didn't inject my personal emotions. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds difficult. How how has the response been from the people that you interviewed? Have they read the book yet? Have they gotten back to you about how they feel about it? Um, you know what? The response has been awesome because everybody really wants to know about the War Brothers. Yeah, who were these guys? Well, I think that's yeah. the thing. There's so much sort of mythology around them. Uh, Frank has been dead for almost fifty years now, and a lot of people in Oakland are still familiar with his name as this sort of icon of pimping culture, which to this day still has a huge presence in, in Oakland and in the Bay. Um, I think you do a really good job in the book of sort of explaining a lot of pimp culture. For example, people might assume, oh, the flashy style, the flamboyant clothes are just because they got swag, they want to look good. But it's actually to be more attractive to women. So like, you know, it's sort of like personal branding or marketing. Same thing with the cars. There's like a reason. There's a science behind all these different kind of mannerisms. That coat, which is the symbol of the picture, the symbol of Goldie, really is a reflection of Frank and the wards and that world. Those are the real guys. They're women. They're cars. They're dress. They're life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the meanest man who ever lives. I mean, they're gonna be talking about Goldie like they used to talk about Jesus. Amen. <laughs> I mean, they're they gonna have to rewrite the the the, the Gamakin game book, baby. You know, because I'm gonna be the new king. Huh? <laughs> well, I'm gonna be so cold bloody baby, that they're gonna have to change the name of the game. Yeah. You know, and then. And I'm going to get the hottest bitches I can find with a whole boatload of money. And and then I'm going to get myself uh, some fine-looking vines and a great-looking ride. And then I'm just going to stir it all up. <laughs> so I almost, I almost said, come and get it. Come and get it. I am. You've mentioned this a couple times about how they came to Oakland and kind of changed the game. So can you expand on that a little bit? Like, how were they doing things different than anyone that had been here before them? Right. I I got this from a couple of people. And actually, like I said, Governor, you know, he's in his 90s. He's probably the eldest person that I interviewed. And he grew up in West Oakland. So he done saw 7th Street from, he the one gave me the names of these old pimps. And he said, Chloe, there was a lot of hoes on 7th Street. And he said, a lot of whole, a lot of old ones. He said, but the War Brothers came, they bought young women, a lot of young women, and put them on and put them on the streets. And they came and they just came into Oakland with their own style and not just pimping. They 
we had the boosting game down. So it wasn't just like... Can you oh, explain what that is for... Like, because it was a whole operation, right? Ex exactly. It was... A, they were described to me as an enterprise within themselves. It wasn't like they were just pimping and depending on this one woman or two or three women. And that's all they did. They had an operation where they had hookers. They had boosters. They had women who ran paper, who hung paper or ran paper, which could be money, I guess, forged money orders or checks. They had a whole operation, a whole system down where all their women were not just working the streets. They had women who had game and doing other things. Like know? they would like train women or women, they would find women who knew how to shoplift and then get those women to train other women and like send them around the country to go to like high-end department stores to steal fur coats and things like that, right? Well, what happened was it was two women and these women were with a group of men from LA called the Magnificent Seven. So they had the boosting game so laid out to where they didn't go to dressing room and steal it, take off tags and stuff it somewhere. While they were actually speaking to the sales clerk, they will be um, on the other side of the rack and they'll be um, taking the clothes and stuffing it up their dress. So by the time the conversation stopped, they'll walk out and they wouldn't even notice the item was missing because they took the hanger too. And that comes back to the gentleman's agreement because the, the guy who, Dean and um, Yvonne, Yvonne was with Frank and Dean was with Ted. They had the same pimp or the, the same guy they were working for. They were sisters in a stable. And so the guy was really upset because, you know, Frank and Ted got their, his women, his women, his boosters. So they, Frank and, um, Frank and Ted had the women call him and say they were okay. They were going down there to get their stuff. So Frank and Ted took them down there to get their things and to let them know the girls are leaving voluntary. They're not being held hostage or anything. And so that came down to a gentleman's agreement. Okay, well, they want to go. They, they could go. And nothing, you know, was no um, war or confusion. So Getting back to the boosting part now, they had Yvonne and they had Yvonne and Dean and Yvonne and Dean, what they would do, they took this kind of like from the movie The Mac, they would actually practice for months before they actually went out. They'll have to walk with things between their legs and go up the stairs, go down the, um, ele the elevator and they had to practice on boosting. Notice the hooks. Now you grab the garment from the inside and bring it out and place it neatly on the hook. Close your coat and get stepping. The wards also, in addition to kind of running these different sort of criminal or illegal operations, they also had some legitimate businesses like some clothing stores and shoe stores that they owned and operated throughout the Bay Area. Was that to, like, launder money, or do you know why they ended up uh, opening real, like, legitimate businesses as well? Were they planning on transitioning out of, okay. you know, pimping and things like that? Right. Well, I think in the beginning of the interview, we talked about Andrew having all these businesses, the pool hall, the cafe, and property. So Andrew was a businessman. He had limited education, but he had limited education not educate his mind to expand you know, that this is what I would like to do. And 
the other brothers, they well, they did see all this. So that was their thing. Like Frank had House of Gators mm-hmm. and that was his business. I don't think he laundered money. I don't know. So, mm-hmm. but I wasn't told that he laundered money in there. Mm-hmm. And then you had Ted, they had a clothing store. Now, from my understanding, that clothing store was where people bought things in. They were boosted. And I guess it was retagged and sold. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he, he was business minded. You know, they had homes in their names. Legitimately, really in their names, not in their mother name, sister name. And so they they had they had smarts about themselves and they were going places, which we will talk about later. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, definitely. Well, speaking of going places, um, they operated outside of the Bay Area as well. Um, I was surprised to learn that they had girls working for them as far away as Alaska, like when the oil pipeline was being built up there and there was these villages of all these men with money to burn. They saw that as an opportunity to uh, run an operation there. And like Frank even shipped his Cadillac up to Alaska and he said when he got there, people thought they were the Supremes. Yeah, well, Gene told me that because, you know, they wore the big wigs and they were all dressed, glamour. Wow. And Gene said when they were at the airport, people thought, and that's Gene is Ted's wife, and they thought that they were Supremes. He said they were telling, oh, you could tell us, we won't tell nobody because, you know, Supremes wore big wigs and they were, you know, dressed and they, you know, so they mo- the whole Motown thing. So they thought that they were Supremes. And yeah, Frank, everybody else, when they got there, they rented hoopties and to get around because they weren't going to stay there for a season. And they said Frank had his car shipped out there. I guess, you know, he was Frank Ward. One of the things that the, the pimp culture is most well known for is something that the War Brothers participated in, and I'm talking about like the players' balls, the players' conventions. And you go into great detail in the book of describing these functions. This is another thing that's sort of been mythologized in the Mac and other movies since then. But what were the real players' conventions like? How did it go down here in Oakland? Where was it? What were the festivities like? Break it down. I believe that it was held at the showcase, Don Barksdale. Yeah, famous NBA all-star. Exactly. Um, Businessman entrepreneur, mm-hmm. radio personality, we go on about Mr. Barksdale. He owned the, was it the Sportsman? And I the, think, yeah, those two clubs, the Showcase right. and the Sportsman. Yeah. Right. And Donald Warden, um, mm-hmm. lawyer, attorney. Um, I've got a whole episode okay. about him okay. and the Afro-American okay. no, Association. No, get, right. Yeah. So you get Donald Warden, Don Barksdale, um, oh, Jay Payton, mm-hmm. and... You get them together with the War Brothers. And, you know, they know they pimps, but like I said, everybody loved the War Brothers. So they got together and they wanted to do a players' convention. It wasn't the players' ball, the players' convention. So they had two before the movie. The movie would have been the third one. And so the player convention was just to get all the players together and um, socialize and just have a good time and mm-hmm. just to recognize what's going on in their um, their clique or their community, the streets. And that don't mean Don, Don Barksdale and um, Jay Payton were street, but they were all really a part, the Warbirds, they all were a part of Oakland. And so, you know, everybody got dressed up and, and it was just basically having a good time. And from my understanding, the second players convention 
was when Ted Ward came in the mink suit, the mink cane, the uh, mink everything, and he got best dressed, and Frank got pimp of the year, or player of the year, but um, it was definitely the players' convention, and then by the time it got to the movie, they called it the players' club, I mean the mm. players, I'm sorry, the players' ball, and if people knew the Ward brothers were going to be there, they were showing up. You look at a scene of the players' ball, and you say, my God, there were all those players. That's not a set. Those are the tables. Those are the walls. Those are the people. That's the feel of it. It works because there's a truth to it, because the costumes, the clothing, is what people were wearing. Going from clothing to cars, you had to have the best ride. That was the real car. That was Teddy's car, incident one of the Ward Brothers' cars. They had a shops in Beverly Hills that were copying that pimp mobile and selling it to people in Beverly Hills. Cars, clothing, every piece of this fabric is intertwined. This is the truth. This is real. One thing that is kind of amazing is how famous the Ward Brothers got uh, during the sort of height of their... Um, involvement in the game. They weren't just known in the streets. Media would come and cover some of their events, like these players' conventions. They were There were photos of them in national magazines. Even you mentioned how once they went to a A's game and it said, welcome to the Ward Brothers on the Coliseum's scoreboard. So if they're so well-known in the public's eye, the media, everyone knows who they are, what they're doing, how did they avoid going to jail because what they were doing in a lot of cases was not legal. Well, prostitution back then was a misdemeanor. It wasn't mm -hmm. a felony. Mm -hmm. And I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe pimping was, wasn't a felony either. I'm not sure about the pimping by no prostitution. And Willie Ward told me they mainly stuck with misdemeanors, not felonies. And you are correct about them being so wide known when they went to the Ali in 71 to the Ali phrase well the Fraser Ali fight the first one I mean you have what um Frank Lucas you know Denzel Washington did his movie you know you had all these other people there who were like in New York this yeah, was, New York this celebrities was in New York. yeah right. New yeah. York kingpins Barbara Streisand, you got, I mean, all these celebrities out there, Frank Sinatra. Then here come the War Brothers with their loud yellow suits right. with the black on, black and yellow yeah. matching shoes and hat. But the thing is this, all these movie stars, of course, they had pictures of all of them in these magazines, but all the movie stars, of course, names were listed, but Frank and Ted Ward name was listed along with the movie star. It said Frank and Ted Ward. You can look in the Ebony Jet, Wee Magazine, because um, it was big coverage, of course. You know, that's Muhammad Ali. <laughs> and um, and you're like, wow, what made them stick out that a person would put their name along with movie stars' name, no one else's names? So they were just that popular. And Reggie Jackson, when they got the new electronic scoreboard, that was Reggie Jackson's doing, because him and Frank, they were, you know, they were best buddies. But they could have said, no, we're not going to put no pimps up there. You know, we're not going to do that. Because, you know, the Oakland A's, that's a le you know, it's legit. It's, they have a league and everything. But they allowed that to happen. You know, these brothers were obviously something special. But they were human as well. I wanted to add that. They were human. They had families they cared about. Brothers and sisters and mother and father. But don't get it wrong. 
they were they were pimps. They were cold-blooded pimps. But it was another side to them. If you got, to my understanding, you got to know them. They were caring. They didn't, you know, encourage their kids to do good, do well, and, you know, go to the best schools. But mm -hmm. they, they were pimps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, well like pimps. <laughs> well, one of the things that also I think is really fascinating is how, well, you write this in the book, how they were basically, you know, running the game in the streets of Oakland. And there's competition. There's other people doing things out there. But you say the Ward brothers were not violent. They weren't shooting people. They didn't carry guns. And they weren't dealing drugs either, which also kind of separated them from, I think, later generations. So how were they able to kind of, you know, run the streets on just charisma when there's so much competition out there? And it is a violent world in the streets of Oakland. It is. And... I think that had to do with the gentleman's agreement, and it was fading out. One of the ladies had told me that Frank had mentioned to her that, you know, he was moving away from the life, the gentleman's agreement, everything is leaving, and he wanted to basically, well, he was actually evolving, you know, getting away from pimping and that life. Now, later on, after Frank died, it may have been some drug dealing, mm -hmm. And I didn't go into that because it was really about writing the era of, you know. Right, this like late 60s, early 70s. Exactly. Kind of the height. Exactly. And they were partying, though. I mean, they, you, you write about how, you know, people <laughs> walk around with those little gold spoons on the chain. And oh, yeah. Oh, well, a little they, bit of the disco dust. They did not sell drugs, but they were connoisseurs of drugs. <laughs> now, that's different. But everybody, uh, not everybody, but in the entertainment world at Fast Life, drugs, alcohol, all that stuff is there. Mm -hmm. And they were connoisseurs of it. No one held back on the fact that, yeah, they snorted cocaine. Cocaine was the drug and smoked weed. But, you know, even some of the famous people who we mentioned earlier yeah. used to go to Frank's house, you know, snort mm -hmm. and uh, smoke weed with him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the Ward brothers were four brothers, black brothers, who really ran underground Oakland. In a way, I think they really ran Oakland. When I met Frank Ward, then I knew the picture had to be made. I mean, Frank Ward changed my life. And I think changed all our lives in many ways. Frank Ward! He was a marvelous guy. He could have been anything he wanted. If he walked in here right now, you'd have to like him. He was this great, strapping, beautiful-looking cat, and you could feel his power. But he was a criminal, a serious criminal. I think one of the reasons why the name of the Ward Brothers is still so well known, not only in Oakland, but really across the world, is because probably the defining movie about the pimp game, the one that influenced everything else that came after that, was The Mac. So can you explain to me the origins of this film, The Mac, and how the Ward Brothers ended up getting connected with it? From my understanding, Robert Poole, Bobby Poole, who wrote the treatment. I don't know if he grew up in San Francisco, but he had a sister who lived in San Francisco who was who knew Willie Ward's woman. And I guess she used to talk about the War Brothers. And so when he wrote the treatment, why? Because he, he, he wrote it on toilet paper in prison, right? They That's what they said <laughs> that's he That's the did. legend, yeah. Right. And I think St. Quentin, they had a program for the prisoners where it's a theater program to write and to produce and do things in theater. So he wrote it 
based on what he was hearing about the War Brothers. He didn't know them. This is what he was hearing. Mm -hmm. And when Willie was telling me that he was getting his sister to call his woman so he get Willie on the phone. And Willie and Willie said that he didn't know him. And he was like, no, I'm not talking to him. He could, you know, he could try to set me up. So after, you know, it was, it was a while. And one day Willie decided to speak with him and he explained to Willie what he was doing. Now, he needed the War Brothers because from my research, he had gotten his this treatment to Bernhard, Harvey Bernhard, who was the producer. And Bernhard had his own company. And so he kind of, you know, was interested to him because the 70s were a lot of black um, exploitation movies. Right. So it was interesting to him. But he told Bobby Poole he was only going to take interest in it if he could find out who these war brothers were. Right. They wanted the movie to be as realistic as possible. Right. And he wanted to see what he was talking about. So that's where he came in to contact them. So once he contacted the um, Wooly, and then they set it up where they could... Um, well, he was in prison when he first contacted really Wooly. So when he got out, he set it up, and he met with Wooly, and they um, Wooly talked to the other brothers, and they got together with the producer and the um, director, and they all met. So the War Brothers agreed to it, and... And they were basically agreeing to be, like, consultants, help even, like, uh, inform the script, and also they allowed some of their clothes and cars to be used in the in the filming, right? Exactly. And they had the right people, because Richard Pryor, as we know, grew, you know, his mother worked in a, um, brought, a brothel, a whole house, and mm -hmm. his father was a, in a, it was a pimp. So Richard Pryor came in, and that was, you know, so he, to rewrite, well, yeah, to write the script, and Max Julian, and Max Julian had came off of Cleopatra Jones, so he was right. already writing scripts. Right. And Max Julian ended up playing Goldie, the main character, the the pimp of the year, and that, he based a lot of that character on his interactions with Frank, right? Exactly, because well, that was their job, because they basically came with nothing. I think they said diner cards, and they basically came with nothing but this, idea of making a movie which they did and they didn't have a budget for the cars and the clothes so but they, they wanted to film it like in the streets like on location in oakland right that was their idea to make it really like a movie that was in the in the game like as right. tightly as possible right and mike campus had the background of being a documentary this mm -hmm. was his first film mm -hmm. so that's why you get that realness because he's uh he was a documentary filmmaker mm -hmm. and mike campus um Right, they wanted to get it real, so my campus hung out with them. He, of course, Richard Pryor did. They hung out with them in the clubs. So he's the director. He wants to get a feel of what it's like. They chose, you know, Ted had the Cadillac, the um, the Caballero, <laughs> different names they call it, but it was had gold flakes in it. And Frank let um, Max Julian wear his gold jewelry. He had two sets of jewelry, platinum and gold. So he let um, Max Julian wear his gold set. He maxing wore their clothes, but it gave him an idea, you know, of the style, how the pimps dress. Well, speaking of which, just real quick to interrupt, there's this hilarious story that you tell in the book of how one day Max Julian shows up to the 
players convention and he thinks he's looking super fly because he's got this like head to toe fur on and all the other pimps started clowning him because they're like that's not mink that's rabbit right right <laughs> and no disrespect to mr julian may of course not of yeah, course yeah, not yeah, you know yeah. may he rest in peace mm -hmm. right you if you see that clip you got ted taking the coat off and looking at everybody's laughing and because they're interacting with Mac and at the same time clowning him because real pimps wear mink. Best of the best. They were, exactly. Now, that code is also um, in a museum now. Wow. So, you know, but yeah, they were really just clowning him, you know, because yeah. it was funny to them, you know, like, ah, oh, you know, a pimp ain't gonna wear no long <laughs> rabbit coat. Yeah, so yeah. Well, it was amazing too that when they were filming, um, so many of the extras or people that had little bit cameos in the movie were real people from the streets of Oakland. They weren't all actors or professional extras. Exactly. And you had um, this, their friends coming in and other players and stuff coming in, you know, because everybody wants want to be a, a part of this movie. It's, you know, it wasn't a political movie. It was a movie about the street life, everyday life that people live. It's like when Goldie was telling the little boy, he was giving out money to the kids and he was telling the little boy to stay in school. And that's what the War Brothers did. They, you know, they would give out money and they would encourage the kids to do better and do better. But this was the street culture. Hey, Goldie. How you doing, Keith? <laughs> How you doing? Uh, I want to be like you, Goldie. Hey, look, I told you about that. Yes. I don't want to ever hear you saying that again. And it goes for the rest of it. You want to be my partner, I don't want to hear you say that. Okay, I mean, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be anything you want to be, but I won't ever hear you saying you want to be like me, okay? Okay. Now, let me give you some of this money now, because i got to get out of here. Go, 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 Be cool now. Just be cool, baby. You been staying in school, huh? Yeah. Okay. Drop it. Yeah, take it and give it to your sister, yeah? Okay. Isn't that one of them damn pimps? Sure in the hell is. And every month, those kids will get their bread. I don't give a damn, he's still a pimp. There's people in the inner city, in the ghettos or the, the inner city, that their stories are not being told and it's real and it's real to them. And I think that's why the Mac and the War Brothers after, cause it'd be 50 years since 1972 when they came to Oakland to make the movies. I think that's why it's going on and on because it's a story that's relatable to people. Yeah, it's almost like there's this um, archetype of this sort of person from the underworld that's like a hero in their own community, probably going all the way back to like Robin Hood or something like that. But thinking about like Chapo or Pablo Escobar, or some of these drug kingpins too, where they're getting in all this money, but it's also getting infused throughout their neighborhoods, which are in a lot of places very depressed, economically marginal areas. So like you say, you know, doctors, lawyers are coming down to... West Oakland or East Oakland, the hood, basically giving money to, you know, these pimps. And then the pimps are spreading it out to young people or other folks that might not ever see that kind of cash. Right. And they're not selling drugs. They're not mm. getting their people hooked on mm. heroin or cocaine. They're not, they're using drugs, like we said before, but they're not selling drugs or, you know, I mean, they sell women. But like I said, we'll get to that where they were weaning off that. Mm -hmm. to become legit mm -hmm. but they were you know they were um they were special you know they were special to their community of people is there 
and this might be kind of a square question, but is there a difference between a pimp and a Mac? I think what the Mac would make the War Brothers Macs is because it just wasn't straight pimping, you know, pimping, you know, beating a woman, forcing a woman to go out there and make money. And you, that's all you do. You have women working for you and you just a dog of a man. Macs are cool, laid back have style and flair, you know, as you see, they, they dressed, presented themselves well, spoke well, um, at the Oakland, I mean, at the California hotel, you know, even with the owner of the California hotel, they had a gambling, uh, they was running a gambling yeah, operation. A underground casino. Exactly. The owner of Zimmerman, they had that going on. They, they were involved, you know, in everything. So their operation was expanded. It was an enterprise. And with a pimp, his business is just getting the, his woman on the street, his women, and making money. But the War Brothers, they were enterprising. And they had houses in nice areas. You know, Drew Mills over there by Mills College. That's still a nice area. Frank and Ted. Montclair. That's nice. So they had homes that you know where doctors and lawyers live business people live that's macking you know and also they had to give a gap you know they mm -hmm. all had their way of, of talking but they had that gift where they could you know talk and like someone told me the other day which they didn't tell me when i was writing the book they they were i would listen to these the two guys talk and they, they were like oh yeah oh yeah frank was a hell of a pimp Frank will pimp niggas too. <laughs> I mean, you know, not like put a man on the on the host role, but that's just how much game he had, you know, that he'll right. have people working for him, doing stuff for him, you know. Yeah, he was able to um, influence people sort and, of mentally. Oh, yeah. They said everyone loved Frank. They said everyone. That's part of the story where the movie people came and Frank ended up being their contact. And I guess because Frank knew, they said Frank had better communication. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, speaking about the production process of this movie, it was complicated, right? You're filming in the streets of Oakland. There's all these kind of legal gray zones that they're operating in. And probably the most famous complication uh, regarding the production of the Mac was the conflict between the film's producers and the Ward Brothers and the Black Panthers. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I think that this is another chapter of Oakland history that has a lot of rumors uh, floating around about it. And obviously only the people who were there will know exactly the truth. But in your research, what were you able to piece together? Well, first of all, Huey Newton, the Black Panthers, and the War Brothers, there was no beef between them. And I got this from Roosevelt Taylor and from Governor... Their thing was shaking down whitey, extortion, basically. A white, oh, these white people are not going to come in our neighborhood without paying us. Just real quick, I wanted to note that after this interview, I found an article in the October 1972 edition of the Black Panther newspaper about this conflict. And according to that piece, the Panthers were demanding higher wages for extras on the film. In the 2003 documentary, Mac and Ain't Easy, the producers of the Mac tell a different version of uh, these negotiations. They knew the War Brothers were involved in this movie, and they knew the War Brothers were getting paid. Maybe they didn't know how much they were getting paid. I still don't know how much they got paid, but they knew, so they wanted a piece of the pie. All this supposed to have happened when Frank was out of town, and the War Brothers were not on the set. 
when the Black Panthers, of course, at night when they busted in um, Harvey's door, the, the producer's door kicked down. That's what Harvey said. Demanded money and all this stuff. I got hit on the shoulder. And the fellow, I turned around and I said, what is it? And the fellow said, the, the man wants to see you. I says, who's the man? He said, Huey Newton. And I said, well, I'm not interested. He says, well, the man wants to see you. I told him, fuck off, you know. I was in my hotel and boom, the door went flat and walked Bobby Seal. And he said, you're in, you're in Panther territory, boy. I said, so what? I said, I got the Ward brothers to protect me. And he says, they ain't shit. I thought he was going to kill me. I, at that moment, I thought I was dead. And we decided that we had better meet Huey Newton. They were basically saying, if you want to film in Oakland, you got to pay us. You got to come through us, right. But they did everything, not in front of the War Brothers. Everything was done, like I said, at night when he said they busted in his door. You know, on the set, when they was throwing bottles down, the War Brothers were not there. Mm -hmm. But from my understanding, Frank went and had a talk with Huey. And he went up to Huey's penthouse apartment at 1200 exactly. Lakeshore. Exactly. And he had talked with Huey Newton and they said that he, Frank and Huey went in the room. Maybe they had a gentleman's agreement, you know, snorted something that came out. But they um, had to talk about that. So them being on the set never happened again. But all that the Panthers did and Huey Newton, I just, well, we just say Huey Newton because he was the leader. Mm -hmm. um, that all happened out of the presence of any of the War Brothers. You know, Ted, you, Ted and Frank used to go up to Yui's, Yui's place. They knew Yui, Yui, you know, from before the movie. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I was told that it was just the Panthers wanted to get a piece of the action. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think that that conflict between the producers of the Mac and the Panthers is one of the reasons why, to this day, a lot of people still believe that the Panthers were involved in the murder of Frank Ward. He was murdered uh, while the movie was still being produced, but before it came out. You've done a lot of research. You've talked to a lot of people. You've dug through a lot of files, police files. Can you break down the you know final hours of Frank's life, and then what did you find in your investigation? Right. And I would like to start off by saying that Frank was murdered in October of 70, 1972, and at the time, he was going to a lot of speakeasies, right? You describe these underground clubs, basically, every, in Oakland. Every day, is they went, every night, they were at a speakeasy when they went out. That was the, you know, I mean, you go to a club, but basically, you forget the club, the speakeasy. But yeah. that's where you can really be yourself. You, could, you can gamble, you can do coke, and they stay open all night. Exactly, exactly. And that's where, that's where it was at. Uh -huh. You know, that where it was at. But, yeah, so to get to Frank's last days, Frank and Ted and Governor were, were together, and um, and Frank told Governor, okay, I'll meet you at the club. i see you at the um, chicken box. They In the papers, say he got killed somewhere else, but it was the chicken, called the chicken box. And that's like North Oakland, almost near the Berkeley border. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And they saw Blanche, and Blanche uh, was Boogaloo's woman. And a lot of people say Blanche was Frank's bottom woman. She was not Frank's bottom woman, and her children would like for that to be known. She was not 
Frank's bottom woman. And he saw um, Blanchard pulled up on the side of them. They had parked and said, um, oh, Frank, you know, I have your bags. Earlier, I guess she had bought some clothing or some items, you know, some boosting things from Frank. And so they got out the car and they were talking and boss, they put it in the trunk of the car. And basically Frank got into Blanche's car from my understanding and boss was waiting for him. And Frank told boss, um, go ahead inside. I'll be there in a minute. So that was the last time boss saw Frank. So we don't know well, what exactly happened, but from my research, there were two guys, and may have been more, but um, from my research, there were two guys, they were cousins. They had just came from L.A. because it was Leon Wagner who was a baseball player out there, he, real famous at the time. He was an all-star being along, traveling all-star being along movie, Richard Pryor, Billy D. Williams, and he was really famous, Daddy Wags. And from my understanding... These guys had busted in his a place where he was at, demanding money. I guess he didn't have enough money on him. He wasn't home and made him call his wife who lived in the same building. And his wife, once when he came to the door, because they pistol whipped him, saw he was bloody and they were trying to make her come in. And she did not, she refused to come in. So she started to, you know, run away and they shot her. She got shot twice. So... They left and came to East Oakland. Now, I didn't... So, these are two guys from... St. Louis. St. Louis, Missouri, who are coming out to California and essentially, allegedly, kind of going on a crime spree, basically. Well, they were allegedly, right? Yeah. <laughs> they were... They had family in L.A., and then I found out they had family in Oakland, too. Mm -hmm. And from the autopsy of one of them, they were... Well, from the autopsy, one of the police reports, they were uh, heroin addicts. And so anyway, that night, you know, Blanche had a brand new, a 73 Cadillac. And it was, this was 1972. She had a brand new Cadillac, white. And of course, you know, Frank had on his watch with the floating diamond. And he had two big rings on. And he may have some, another piece of jewelry. And Blanche had diamonds on. And so these guys, you know, standing from a distance, you could see all this. And from my understanding, before Frank came back to Oakland, they were trying to lure other people um, out of the gambling places to rob them. Mm -hmm. You know, because I was told, this is before I found, read the police reports on their M.O. They were telling, um, for like Frank Barati, we got some furs in the car. Mm -hmm. You know, come check them out. They were just doing anything to try to get them out. And I was told this before I even read the police reports in St. Louis where they would tell people we're selling suits to try to get them to the car. They had a history of robbing people. and They were kind of looking for, for big were, fish because they, right. they had heroin addictions, allegedly. And they're trying to, you know, they see people with diamond rings, fancy cars, and they figure if we're going to rob someone, let's make it worth our while and go after, you know, the flashiest guys exactly. we can find. Exactly. And they found out where they hung out at the California Hotel in these after hours, these speakeasies. And so um, we don't know what happened. We just, all we know is that um, by the time governor got there, he asked boss, he said, where's Frank? I'm supposed to meet Frank. And boss said, I don't know. He's outside talking to a broad. He'll be in a minute. So 
time went by, no one saw Frank, and Blanche Carr was gone, and then, of course, the murder happened because it somehow, supposedly, I got back to L.A. first, and people start calling. And Well, just before we get right. to that, um, so the, the car was discovered a couple blocks away, right? Blanche Carr was, because yeah. Boss had the keys to, well, they, they were sitting in Blanche Carr. So the thinking is that these men had to come up to the car to get their attention. We're going to say a gun was pulled on them because they ended up getting shot. And one of them got in the back seat and the other one drove. And they ended up on Park or Parker's Parker. They ended up there. Now, if you read the report, they, you know, were in the process of robbing them because Frank had, you know, all his jury was gone. But what I didn't know, Blanche's son told me that she had all her jewelry on and her purse was untouched. So I would think that something happened where Blanche jumped out the car and that triggered them because they sh shot Frank and they already had his jury. And maybe when they was robbing him, she saw opportunity to get away. And thank God she made it to the... Um, front porch to ring the doorbell before collapsing. A significant chunk of Chloe's book is dedicated to the aftermath of this double homicide. In some ways, the results of her investigation point to a relatively simple story. That two men, Paul and Otis Edwards, who allegedly had a pattern of violent criminal behavior and were addicted to heroin, killed Frank and Blanche in a botched robbery. Chloe not only dug up police reports that corroborate this version of events with information about, for example, how one of the suspects tried to sell Frank's jewelry at a pawn shop, but she even tracked down acquaintances of these suspects to bolster her case. Unfortunately for the wards and Blanche's family, law enforcement didn't seem particularly interested in solving the murders. So the families were racked with fear and paranoia. They didn't know if whoever killed Frank and Blanche might be coming for them next. And they pulled back from the streets, not knowing who they could trust, sometimes not even knowing if they could trust each other. By the time Frank was laid to rest in Evergreen Cemetery, the ward's empire had already begun crumbling. The wards didn't even attend the premiere screening of the Mac in Oakland. Here's the film star, Max Julian, looking back on this tragedy for an interview with the Mackin Ain't Easy documentary. The accusations were just wild, like wildfire. You know, all oh, the Panthers had him killed. And somebody said it had to be a drug deal, a drug thing, because he was killed in a car with a girl, and it was like an assassination. Somebody shot him from the rear. Frank would never have been in that situation with somebody like Huey Newton. I liked Frank. And I really believed in my heart that if Frank had chosen another way of life, he could have made a major contribution to the world. In the years after Frank's death, Oakland became more violent as bigger guns and more drugs flooded in, first heroin, then crack. In the book, Chloe recounts how some women who worked for the Ward brothers left the street life to go back to school, start families, embark on less dangerous careers. And as for the brothers themselves, it didn't happen overnight, 
but eventually they too chose a different path. One that seems to have brought them comfort and stability after a lifetime of ecstatic highs and devastating lows. After they went through everything they did in life, they lived for the Lord. Mm, and that's wow. what I think the most thing about the story that I would like to say is they were redeemed. Yeah. They were really redeemed. You had Ted and Jean sold out for God. They, you know. What do you mean by that? I mean, just totally sold out for the Lord, serving God. Anything the church had to offer, they were there doing not just Bible study and church. They were there witnessing, going knocking on doors, trying to save souls. They were, um, wow. yeah, they traveled, you know, um, missionaries for their church. They did everything, went to all the meetings. One lady just after, I would have put it in a book, but she told me afterwards, she said, I don't think there's a such word as having want to go to church too much. She said, but Ted and Jean were really churched out. Wow. She said, we're, we'll all be having some a gathering or everybody will be around. And then they were like, oh, we got to go. They were going to church. Wow. Yeah, they put God first before everything. You know, and Ted mm -hmm. and Jean lost everything, but they put God first and God gave them. They were, when Ted died and Jean just died in um, September, they were homeowners and everything that they lost basically came back the right way. And Drew, he died in a rest, I believe he was in a, um, a senior home or a resting home, but he came to the Lord, you know, Willie came to the Lord. And I think that's the story that, people should see in in here also that they were young they had fun they had a wild life but from being in Alabama being raised in a church singing in a choir they came back to the Lord and they um when they died they they, they knew they didn't die this being old pimps and still trying to hang out and be young they died knowing, knowing God, and they died serving the Lord. They were they were in church. I'm going to tell you a story in stereo about the pimping game that you should know. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. Before I even get into the credits, I just want to say that personally, I think sex work between consenting adults should be decriminalized. That of course does not include coerced human trafficking and the sexual exploitation of minors. Look, this is all a very complicated topic and I actually covered it once before on this show with a very different focus. If you want to hear a story about women who are trying to prevent the exploitation of minors in Oakland's underground sex economy, check out episode four. It uh, came out about five years ago, and it's called Celeste Guap is Not the First. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, uh, moving on. Big shout out to everyone supporting this show on Patreon. If you can afford three bucks, five bucks, 20 bucks, whatever, it all adds up and it helps 
tremendously. Uh, you can find a donate link at eastbayyesterday.com if you want to support the show. You can also sign up for my newsletter if you want to hear about upcoming events. Yes, the boat tours are back. <laughs> they always sell out really fast, so get on that if you're interested. And special thanks to Scott Saul for some research assistance. Uh, check out the Berkeley Revolution site to see some amazing local history that Scott has helped compile. Oh, and one more thing, please, if you like the show, spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your families, post about it on social media. Uh, I see you guys out there spreading the word, and I really, really appreciate it. Music for this episode came from Willie Hutch, The Supremes, The Ballads, and Too Short. And that's about it. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue, and I'll be back soon with more East Bay Yesterday.